0: Welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 149. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tia and Jack. Now, today we do have a special guest joining us on the show. You may have heard his name mentioned once or twice or quite a few times along the TBD grapevine, and that is Lawrence Greve. So Lawrence is an accomplished natural bodybuilder here from Australia. He's also a newly graduated physiotherapist. And we thought we'd bring them on the show today to talk all things bodybuilding and physiotherapy. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lawrence.
1: Guys, thank you so much for having me on. I do like to consider myself one of the, the more loyal and OG TBD podcast listeners. So I'm yet to miss an episode. So to be actually on as a guest is a bit of a thrill. So thank you very much for having me on today.
0: Yeah, we know this has been a long time in the making. And now that you are officially a podcast host yourself, the time is now.
1: Yeah. So it's um, obviously by now the time that this episode comes out, both you and Jack have actually been on and they're both been some of my more popular episodes, which is awesome because it means more people are hearing your great voices and the great info you have to offer. So it's a great pleasure to just be able to return the favor.
0: Yeah. And if anyone doesn't know that podcast, it is called the General Muscle Podcast, just a sneaky little plug there. But Lawrence, before we get into some physio related questions, we'd love to hear the elevator pitch. So tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it.
1: Yeah, so I guess straight off the bat, talking about my profession, I am, like you mentioned, a newly graduated physiotherapist. So I practice out of a private practice in Brisbane called Everybody's Physio, and there we see primarily musculoskeletal conditions. So I guess you can think of that as the more typical conditions that you're going to think of when someone's going to a physio. So. Obviously, seeing every joint in the body, primarily a lot of chronic low back pain, chronic neck pain, knee pain, all that sort of stuff that is a little bit more prevalent in the population. But I see people all the way from 14 years old all the way up to 80 years old. So we see a really nice spectrum of conditions in there of both chronic pain as well as acute sporting injuries, which is where my main passion for physiotherapy lies. Obviously, like you guys with dietetics, there's a lot of different streams you can go into. And I know that both of you spoke about the hospital side of dietetics and that not really being something that really pulled at you when you were doing your studies. And I was quite similar. Obviously, the physios play a great role in the hospital system. And I really respect the role they play within the overall chain of the allied health team and looking after the patient and getting them home. But it's just not what I really fell in love with about physio. Mm -hmm my passion is in exercise and sort of being an advocate for the patient and trying to empower them to live really active lives, because ultimately exercise is one of the most important things that we can be doing in order to maintain our health and maintain our mobility. So I feel that the best way I can do that for people is to be in a private practice setting, dealing with musculoskeletal injuries. So, I am sort of a week and a bit into my physiotherapy career. So I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers, but it's been a really, really good start. And I've seen a lot of patients already and it's just been awesome. And I'm I'm super blessed to be in the position I am at the place that I work. So it's been a really, really good start to the career. And obviously bodybuilding is a big part of my life as well. So I have been training in the gym with the goal of gaining muscle for about five and a half years. And about five years of that has actually been... Getting ready for shows. Well, I guess I started prepping for my first show when I was 16. So, when I was in grade 12, was the first time I decided, okay, I'm going to compete. And I had the guiding light that was Joey Cantlin, my coach who owns Team HFS. He took me through my first competition prep and he's been with me, I should say, the whole way through. So, I did my first show in season A of that year and immediately fell in love with it. Fell in love with the whole idea of just being able to train really hard, put on muscle and then chip away at your physique in order to display this kind of Greek God statuesque end product on stage, which I just thought is such a cool thing to do and to be able to push the body to that extreme where you're really getting the most out of yourself. I found really fascinating. And I learned a lot about myself in that first prep and yeah, I just sort of fell in love with that feeling of really going through a bit of suck, but still being able to push yourself and and still being able to get the job done so since then I've done two more seasons. Um my most recent in 2020 where I had quite a successful year and was able to come away with some overall titles and a fair few class wins which was awesome. And now I'm I guess in full off-season mode or improvement season mode with the head down and the focus is just gaining as much size, quality size as possible, getting super strong in the gym, eating all the food. And the next uh, stage outing will be in 2023 of season B, where we'll look to do another string of the shows that I've normally done. So likely a tropics show up north, a couple of the Brisbane shows, nationals, wherever it may be in Australia, and then hopefully borders pending and hopefully the world's back to normal by then. We can actually get on a plane and go do some of the bodybuilding overseas, which would be sick.
0: Yeah, I know. Absolutely. We are all aiming together, the three of us for season B 2023. So I think we're going to have to get on Webjet together and perhaps book the same flight.
1: Well, I think on an Instagram post or Instagram comment, you have already called the window seat. So (laughs) I'm going to honor that as much as you guys will, but I can see it now. You at the window, then Jack, then me, Gemma to my right. And then probably down the aisle we'll have Joey and Lisa, maybe Dan and Nicole as well. Dan and Alana. It'll
2: it'll be a party. The most jacked plane of all time. (laughs) Lots of protein farts as well. That is true. That is very true. Cool. So we've got a bunch of questions for you today. And I guess with us having a podcast, we get a lot of questions about Specific topics which are outside of our scope. So, musculoskeletal related questions for injuries and just uh, questions better suited for a physiotherapist. So, we've compiled a lot of them together, plus a bunch of questions we got asked for you as well. And question number one here is difference between cold and heat for injuries. Awesome. So,
1: just before I start answering the question, I will just give you guys a little bit of props in that I think you do a really good job at making sure the audience knows that you're not trying to. Put a physio hat on or put a doctor's hat on when you do answer these questions i think you guys do, uh, do a great job of answering it within your own personal anecdotes and experiences without trying to go out of your scope which i really expe- respect and it's sort of also kept me on my game to do a similar thing on my podcast when i'm getting more of those nutrition questions but if we get to the question at hand so heat versus ice now icing is one of those things that is a little bit contentious in the sports injury sports rehab and physiotherapy world there are some practitioners who won't ice altogether there are some who will let the patient choose and do it if they find helpful and there's some people who really really like it so the difference between the heat and ice we need to think about what sort of injury we're dealing with so if you've got an acute injury that you've sustained while lifting or while on the sporting field something like a joint sprain or a muscle tear that's when we're going to see a pretty quick and pretty acute increase in inflammation and swelling around the area if that's the case heat is actually a contraindication so we don't want to be putting any heat on those sort of injuries there's a nice little way to remember it it's do no harm for an acute injury so that's do no heat alcohol running or massage so those are four things we want to avoid in those really acute stages however If you are having a more chronic condition, chronic low back pain, chronic neck pain, shoulder pain, stuff like that, you're commonly going to have a patient that complains of stiffness in the area. So having a heat pack over that area for about 20 minutes or so can help to decrease some of that perceived stiffness and decrease the pain a little bit. So the relaxing effect that the heat has on the muscle tissue can provide some analgesic benefits, which can be really nice. And it can be a really nice adjunct to some exercises or some stretches that you maybe have prescribed the patient. The ice, like I said, more in that acute setting where we're actually trying to dull down the inflammation and reduce that pain, but we don't want to be mixing the two too much. So the biggest thing I could say is that if you have an acute injury, stick with ice, don't throw any heat on it, do no harm. If you have a long-standing injury, I'm just going to leave it up to you. I tell my patients that whatever they find more helpful as long as they're only doing it for about that 20 minutes at a time. So the longer that heat's on or that ice is on, it can alter our sensation a little bit. And if people are continuing to do it over a really chronic time span, you can actually end up with people burning themselves either from ice burns or from heat burns. So that's one thing
2: just to be a little bit careful of. Mm, Very interesting. I've definitely personally had a a lot of experience with heat packs myself for my lower back. Like I still use it. To be honest, one to two times a day, I use a heat pack on my lower back. Like even mm. before I go to sleep, just to, for the, for the reasons you stated, like reduce some stiffness, uh, especially after a leg day, I find it quite uh, not, not necessarily therapeutic, but relaxing in that area.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And like even the hot baths are, mm. are quite popular and man, I'll be copping a hot bath after a long leg day rather than an ice bath every day of the week not only which i think you guys have mentioned on the podcast can that sort of cold war immersion actually interfere with some pathways related to the hypertrophy cascade and signaling Mm -hmm. but man hopping a hot bath with some bubbles rather than like gritting your teeth as you like jump into some bath of ice in it i think the former is going to be a lot more relaxing and you're probably going to get a lot more out of your overall recovery that way
0: Yeah, you betcha. And Lawrence, what would you classify as acute versus chronic? Where would you then draw that line of saying, okay, you should graduate from ice over to heat?
1: Yeah. So once again, it's going to depend on the injury. So an acute ankle injury, something you've twisted your ankle playing netball or soccer or something like that, that we would expect to heal quite quickly. So you're not going to even have that pain if everything goes to plan for the amount of time it would take to then classify something as a chronic long-standing injury. So in the literature, it'll differ a little bit, but anything sort of above three to six months where you're having persistent pain of the same nature, that's when we're starting to get towards chronic pain. But I think rather than thinking of it as sort of chronic versus acute pain, a really good way to maybe simplify it is just think, okay, do I have a bit of that, for lack of a better term, stiffness in the area? And do I find that the heat that heat actually helps to ease that a little bit and at least give me the perception of a bit of increased range of motion and decreased pain. If that's the case, then the heat's
2: probably a good idea for that area. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, so this is probably our most popular question. We get asked it very frequently. So when is the best time to start using a belt, a lifting belt, and how should they be used?
1: Yeah, so I answered something pretty similar to this on my podcast recently as well. And once again, the lifting belts, everyone's going to have a different thing to say and i think we can't look at it in a black and white way just like you guys will know with your area of expertise nutrition there is no cookie cutter there is no recipe approach to these sorts of things you need to consider the individual so i'm always of the thinking that if you are starting off in the gym you're probably not going to run out and grab a lifting belt because you don't really know about them yet so and i think that's probably a good thing so if you're starting out and even if you are doing some lumbar or axial loading exercises like deadlifts, Romanian deadlifts, bent over barbell rows, barbell back squats, stuff like that. There's no need to whack a belt on when you're learning how to squat. And in fact, it's probably going to actually impact how you learn that movement pattern. So I think the best time to start using a belt is when you start to notice that, okay, I'm racking up for my barbell back squat and I'm getting to rep eight out of my set of 12 And my quads aren't that sore. My legs feel like they can keep going, but I've just got this fatigue in my lower back. Maybe you've got one of those big lower back pumps, a bit of discomfort and a bit of fatigue in those muscles. If the lower back being fatigued is becoming a limiting factor to you progressing that movement, which is, let's be honest, not really for the lower back, you're training your legs in that instance, then I think we can utilize the belt and deploy that as an option. Similar thing for using straps. If you get to the point where your grip is failing on a deadlift, then you're gonna limit yourself in how strong you can get for your erectors and your glutes and your hamstrings. So strap up, use some Versa grips or some figure eight straps in order to help you lift more weight. Because at the end of the day, we're not training our grip strength, we're training our back. So I think if you find an area within the gym, a certain exercise where your lower back and your ability to create tension through your
2: trunk is becoming a limiting factor, then deploy the belt and see if that helps. Mm, awesome and i think a lot of people like they think once they reach a certain weight they like graduate to a belt or a lot of people as well they don't know how to brace to start off with or stabilize and then they use a a belt as well um, without having adequate technique first
1: yeah i like your point there about actually knowing how to brace because if you don't know how to actually perform like what's called the valsalva maneuver and create that intra-abdominal pressure a belt's not going to help mm. and it's actually a little bit humorous sometimes and maybe it's bad that i find it funny but when you see people i'm sure you guys have seen it as well in the gym and they're lifting with a belt but you can literally see how loose it is on them <laughs> and you just look at them and go that is doing absolutely nothing and it just shows what a strong effect the placebo effect can have because they probably feel better with it on just touching their skin even though i could probably reach my hand in and like stick my hand out the other end and go, Hey,
2: where it's not tight enough. It's not doing anything. If that's the case. Mm. It's more of a fashion accessory at that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how tight should it be? Like some, should it be suffocating you? Should you be able to uh, fit your hand in there? Yeah. So
1: I think that if you're able to slide your hand down, that's probably going to be too loose. The belt needs to be tight enough so that when you do try and pull some air in, tense through your core it should feel like it's pressing quite tightly on each side of your trunk because we always talk about the abs when it comes to core control but the reality is is that you need to think of the core as like a can or like a bottle the whole way around we have muscles that are contributing to that so you've got the abdominals on the front the erectors on the back you've got your obliques filling in the sides and then even at the top you've got the diaphragm which is playing an important role and at the bottom you've got the pelvic floor So you've got a whole group of muscles that are actually supporting that like a can or like a bottle. So we want that whole area to be able to push into the sides of the belt and create that pressure. And all it's really doing is it's allowing you to keep that trunk more rigid so that you can then place more emphasis on the muscles that you are trying to train in that exercise.
0: And by doing that, would that by any chance limit your lower back hypertrophy
1: Yeah. So that's always the argument, isn't it? I know that AJ is a big proponent of the beltless pulls. He kind of Mm -hmm. coined that term for a while. And I know that he really hung his hat on that fact that it does result in, in his opinion, some better growth of the lower back erectors and the mid back erectors. And I was always very skeptical of that because there's not a whole lot of literature to support changing in muscle activation for the spinal erectors when using a belt there is some to support that activation may actually be better in the quads when we use the belt in certain Mm -hmm. rep ranges and in certain exercises but then again the old anecdote comes back to (laughs) then throw a spanner in the works because my lumbar erectors have probably made the most progress in the last 18 months than they ever have in the fact that i actually look like i have some at the moment in my rear shots and your deadlifts also come up (laughs) exactly (laughs) but the thing is like this recent run of form with the deadlift has been beltless Mm. so i got up to i think 167 and a half for six when i was using a belt and then i had a bit of an injury i did my hamstring during prep so i didn't deadlift for the rest of the prep so the point where i actually got back into deadlifting like six months later once i had recovered from the show i thought I'm just going to see how these go without a belt. I'll just see how I go. If I feel like I'm really struggling without it, I'll put the belt back on. I started, I kept going, and now I'm lifting a lot more than I ever have. And I haven't put a belt on for deadlifts in two years, something like that. And also haven't had any incidences of like low back pain that's lasted more than a couple of days. So I've had mm-hmm. like one or two episodes where maybe I've, ooh, I've tweaked something. But other than that, um, at least for my case study
2: n equals one it's made no difference and do you think some people are like more prone to to lower back issues like i for one maybe it's just anecdotal but like if i try and do a deadlift last time i it didn't end well and i feel like bent over rows rdls uh even like a hack squat wearing a belt like really really helps me whether it's placebo i'm not sure 100 percent. and in your instance
1: like where you have had sort of lower back pain that has been a bit more persistent and probably getting onto like that chronic time frame. you are obviously using a belt in the correct way and you're using it to assist the lift where you do notice an objective decrement performance when you don't have it. And I would agree with you on the hack squats. Like when I'm getting up to my working sets on the hacks and with barbell back squat, I'll use my belt. But in terms of whether or not people are more predisposed Based on biomechanical factors for picking up injuries in certain lifts. Once again, the literature is really, there's nothing to support that that's the case. And even if we think about lifting postures overall, like there's actually literature to support that the deadlift movement is more efficient when we allow for some spinal flexion. And there's nothing to tie lifting posture in, say, the deadlift to actually acquiring low back pain. So it's one of those things where, we don't actually know often what causes injuries. And a lot of the time we like to point to form or not warming up properly or using too much weight. But I think a lot of the time people just get unlucky. And I often have to have this conversation with patients because they come into my office and immediately they've got these ideas of, oh, I know I should have done this. And I didn't do that right this morning. And I almost just try to like calm them down a little bit, just say, it's not really your fault this stuff just happens and it happens out of the blue. So often there's not much we can do to prevent it. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. Well, that is definitely very reassuring. Uh, And Lawrence, this next question, it's an interesting one. So in physio terms, what's the difference between strong and weak? So for example, can I be strong in hip thrusts yet have weak glutes? Or can I have a six pack, but have a weak core?
1: Yeah. So Really good question and something that I think would confuse a lot of people because it confused me for a long time before my education kind of caught up to where it is now. And I think Jack and I, we've had this discussion before where you went to sort of a physiotherapist who said, oh, the reason for your low back pain is you've got weak glutes. And you're kind of sitting there in the back of your mind thinking, mate, I hip thrust 200 kilos. I don't have weak glutes. And I think that can sometimes be a fair enough argument. I think where the weakness can come to place is say, let's say we've got someone with left-sided low back pain. And you notice that when you perform like an outcome measure, such as a single leg glute bridge to failure, they can get 20 without being puffed on the right, but they only get five on the left. That's when we're starting to think, okay, maybe the weakness is a cause for some of the low back pain in this particular instance. And perhaps increasing the strength on that side could change some things for this person. However, The whole week argument tends to, I think, sometimes get thrown around a little bit too much because certain injuries, like I said, it's unpredictable. It's very hard to nail down the particular reason for the pain because pain is so multifactorial. And often a lot of the time, what may be a bigger predictor of someone picking up an injury is like, what does their lifestyle look like? Are they a smoker? Are they overweight? Are they engaging in very little exercise? Were they really stressed that week? Like those are often actually bigger predictors of what's going on. So when it comes to a muscle being weak or strong, I think we need to be really careful with how we attribute that to what's actually presenting in the patient's condition. So if you can find an objective measure of weakness in a muscle and tie that to then the patient's condition, then maybe through addressing that, we can get a positive outcome where we actually improve some of their pain. But then it's the same sort of argument where if you go into that looking for a weak muscle, then you can convince yourself that it is there and that it's the cause when it might not actually be the case. So I like the phrase that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you have this one tool and maybe a preconceived agenda that, okay, I'm going to go in and fix this weak muscle, it can cloud your judgment a little bit and maybe not see the full picture of the person that's coming to you. So yes, sometimes some weaknesses in certain muscle groups may be the cause of an injury or pain, but it's not always going to be the case it's definitely a confusing topic for some yeah if you want to be super objective about it we have what we call manual muscle tests which are very standard procedure in physiotherapy so basically they give you a rating from one to five based on how strong the muscle is and you compare that side to side so three is you can move the muscle against gravity with against no resistance however And five is you can move that muscle through its full range against maximal resistance. So that's how we will often quantify a muscle strength. But even that is not going to be a perfect science. And what is often a lot better is if you can get some devices which are called handheld dynamometers. So I'm not sure if Jack, you may have experience with Scott. Mm -hmm. I know he has one at his office where you press into this little handheld device and it gives you a reading of how much force that side is actually producing. So yes, there we're getting a little bit more objective But once again, is it the cause for the pain? It's a little bit more complex to figure out if that's the case.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Because, you know, we've certainly encountered people who have, you know, you can see their muscle architecture. For example, they have like a very defined six pack, but then they mentioned that they perhaps saw a physiotherapist or someone, and then they were told that they actually have a weak core, but it's like, it doesn't look weak. So I can understand how it might be very confusing.
1: Yeah, I think the core is probably a little bit more of a unique one because as we know, genetics, muscle architecture, morphology, that's going to play a little bit more into the abdominals as, say, another muscle group. Mm
0: -hmm. Like if
1: you see someone with huge booming lats, they probably don't have weak lats. But someone with a really nice aesthetically looking six-pack could just be at a low enough body fat for you to see them have really nice genetics that gives them lovely symmetrical abdominals really round bubbly abdominals however they could still have some weakness in the underlying core muscles so Mm. there's a fair few layers of abdominal musculature below the rectus abdominis which are our our six-pack muscles and we could be thinking of some weakness in those areas rather than say the superficial
2: muscles that we see Mm. Mm. Cool. So this question says stretching. Can we actually stretch our muscles? What is actually going on?
1: Yeah. So if we think about static stretching, we're thinking about temporarily changing our perception of what we're feeling. So if you are feeling a little bit of tightness in your hamstrings and for you doing a static hamstring stretch on the floor is something you like before a training session, you might hold it for about 15 or 20 seconds and afterwards the perception of tightness in the hamstrings is decreased. Now, holding a hamstring in a stretch position for 15 seconds has done nothing to the tissues, absolutely nothing. But it has provided a sensory input to that area to alter our body's perception of how tight, in air quotes, that area is. So the only thing that has been shown consistently in the literature to actually improve muscle length, where we're actually getting some stretching of the fascicles, is going to be eccentric loading, which we do all the time because we (laughs) are doing slow controlled eccentrics, which is great. You'd hope. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you hope. So if you've got chronically tight calves and you can feel that there is stiffness around that ankle joint, particularly when you're going to dorsiflex, a 30-second calf stretch where you're up against the wall is just not going to cut it. What you actually want to do is get on the Smith machine, do some really slow three-second eccentrics, under load, stretch that muscle, And then whether or not you want to follow that up with actually the concentric portion and just use it as a conventional calf raise, that's up to you. But that eccentric loading is going to be a lot more effective for actually improving muscle length than a static stretch. But to cut a long story short, the thing that stretching is doing is changing
2: our perception to how stiff or how tight that muscle is for an acute period. So if someone, let's say at week one, can't touch their toes and then week six they can like put their hands flat on the ground. Like is that purely just adapting to the sensory input of of the stretch? It could be. It could be. So in that
1: particular instance, in week one if they couldn't and then week six they can, I would be very confident with saying that if they were only doing static stretches, that probably wouldn't be the case. But the bending down the toes is a tough one as well because if you do that, sometimes you can get a stretch that is a slightly different sensation to what you would feel from a muscle. So if you've ever had nerve pain where you get quite aggravated by lifting your leg up while keeping your knee straight, that pain is a little bit different, that sort of neuromechanic sensitivity that we call it. And that is something that is really adaptable. So that is something that we provide patients with a little bit of stimulus again and again and again until they can tolerate that movement a little bit more. So in that case with bending down to touch your toes, you're probably going to tolerate that nerve stretch a bit more, but if it's truly a restriction in muscle length, it's only the eccentrics that are actually going to improve
0: that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what is the literature surrounding stretching as a recovery modality? So for example, it's not uncommon for people to stretch after they do some resistance training in hope that they're going to perhaps feel less sore and recover quicker
1: yeah so i was actually looking at an infographic by a physio that i follow and she puts out some really awesome information and yeah in that sort of thing it said once again there is no literature to actually show that stretching post-workout will improve your recovery and once again we're dealing with inputs and stimulus and sensation if you find that it's helpful then stretching post-training, if you're doing it in a static fashion, is probably going to be better than doing it before training. Mm. As the literature is pretty clear that holding a static stretch in a muscle group for longer than 60 seconds prior to physical training is probably not optimal if you're wanting to produce maximal force and power during weightlifting sessions. So by all means, if you want to do a bit of stretching afterwards because it makes you feel good, there's no issue with that. But is it going to really improve recovery that much probably not
0: oh interesting so again it would just be more of that sensory input so for example like if you've got sore adductors you get down on the floor and do that butterfly pose where you like you push against your knees to try to stretch your adductors that's genuinely just a sensory input but it's not actually increasing or improving recovery
1: yeah so wow obviously in that time we you might notice that the next time you go to to that stretch it is better Mm. and that's because you're able to tolerate that a little bit more because you've exposed it to that stimulus beforehand. And you can get a bit further and a bit further. You haven't improved the muscle length. You've improved the temporary range of motion through decreasing that pain or that stretch sensation by a bit. But like you do with sort of like your yoga stretching that you do out mm. in the yard, like, it seems like you do that either on a rest day or far away from training mm. because you like it and it makes you feel good. And it yeah. it makes you feel like it helps with your flexibility I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Like I do static stretches before my training session. I'm just sure that I only hold them for a very short amount of time. And the reason I do it is because it makes me feel better. Mm. And I know I happen to know why it's making me feel better, but at the end of the day, everyone's going to be so variable that if you have certain things that you like doing and it's not hindering your performance or your recovery, I don't see why we can't just keep doing them.
0: Awesome. Cool. And talking about sensory input, we actually have another question about what are your thoughts on cupping? And can you explain to people what is cupping?
1: Yeah. So, cupping has actually been around for a very long time. So, it originates in like medieval times. And I guess in our modern world, cupping is where you typically get like a glass cup and you put it on the skin. A lot of people do it through their back. And you have a little apparatus at the top of the cup that you pull out and that increases the pressure within the cup to pull the skin and that area of the tissue up, creating like a suction-like effect. So it seemed to get very popular around 2016 because we had the the Olympics, of course, in Rio and Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer of all time, was walking around the pool with all these perfectly circular bruises on him. Yeah. And that started a bit of a trend where cupping is now quite a a commonly used passive therapy or manual therapy, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think the claims that people that use cupping make are not supported by empirical evidence. So a lot of people will say that it improves blood flow. It clears toxins. There's no research to support that. And in fact, the blood flow thing really annoys me because I would challenge you to sort of think that if you're, doing a therapy that creates a bruise the bruise has occurred because there is now stagnated blood in that area mm-hmm. so wouldn't actually just going for a normal massage where you're actually pushing the muscle along its whole length actually improve blood flow or help go for a walk that's going to improve blood flow a lot more than sticking some cups on your body and the research around it as an effective use for actually preventing injury is non-existent And even as a passive modality to temporarily affect pain, the research is mixed at best. So there's no empirical data to support cupping as an effective way to actually manage an injury or to support your recovery. I think that it's probably, if you enjoy it, it's maybe a mediocre way to decrease pain in the short term. The only thing that I think it's very good at is making you look like you've been attacked by an octopus and that's it.
0: I had a friend back in high school, and this was back in like 2014, and he had cupping along his back. And I was like, what happened to you? Like it looks absolutely horrendous.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if you guys saw I shared something to my Instagram story the other day. And this dude is sitting there very jack guy, obviously a pretty high level enhanced bodybuilder with no joke, maybe 50 or 40 cups Mm, on his back. Yeah. And then it's all the theatrics where he like tenses his back muscles and they're like falling off him. (laughs) What are we doing? Like it's just such a passive therapy. And the thing that I think this gets us into slippery waters as physios, if you're using this is that it gets you into that way of thinking that you always have to do something. Mm -hmm. It makes you think that you always have to put your hands on the patient because whilst I think there's a place for manual therapy, I think there's a place for therapeutic touch and giving the patient pain relief during the session. If you are always doing something like that, it then gives you the power and it makes them think of you as a pain relief strategy. Mm. When in actuality, the long-term way to manage pain is to help them self-manage their own symptoms and do that through stretching, exercises, things that are actually going to improve their quality of living. But if they're continuing to come back to you again and again for this quick fix, I think that creates a little bit of a strange dynamic between the therapist and the patient and I don't think that's where physios are best served in our role
0: yeah yeah I really like going back to what you said at the very beginning of the podcast about do no harm I think that's awesome because what I always find is that if I initially hurt myself something that I want to do first is like poke the injury like it is again that sensory input uh but like you said you don't want to necessarily especially in those acute phases really be doing anything but potentially icing it and elevating it like you don't want to be poking at it
1: yeah exactly and i do think that there is obviously there's instances where you should be going in straight away to see a physio or mm. to get an injury assessed but often people will overreact about very little things and if you give them a little bit of time and you just try and leave it alone the natural history of a lot of these conditions is quite good and the body is extremely good at healing itself Mm. and adapting and sometimes we just need to leave it to do that
0: yeah all right and Lawrence we do have another question in relation to external stimulus so what are the misconceptions behind foam rolling
1: okay so foam rolling is also another one that gets people into all sorts of debates but I think the biggest misconception that I see is coming back to the stretching issue where people think it's breaking down muscle tissue and blasting apart fascia and all that sort of stuff to lengthen their muscles but that's once again not the case foam rolling is essentially doing what a massage would it is providing a force to the underlying muscle tissue to create a stimulus that over time doles down the pain response so once again if you are using foam rolling i myself use it i really like it before my sessions because it gives me that perception that I've got a little bit less doms in the area, makes me feel like I can access a bit more range of motion. So if you're using it for that reason, I don't say see there being an issue. But the issue where I think people can sometimes get themselves in a bit of hot water is that let's say they've got some longstanding lower back pain. They hop on the foam roller. It takes the pain from a five out of 10 down to a three out of 10. They're like, I'm good to go. Let's crack on. The foam roller in that instance is just a band-aid over another band-aid over another band-aid. And if you keep doing that, yes, the pain might not get worse, but it also might get worse. And it's probably not going to get better. So if we're addressing injuries and pain in this very superficial way and not actually thinking about what could be the cause of the injury, then you're spinning your wheels a little bit and you're probably not going to get any better. So yes, it might be enough to tolerate in the short term, but if you are able to get to the point where you're pain-free, your training might improve tenfold. So we need to think about what we're using the foam rolling for. If it's to loosen up a little bit, to dissipate some DOMS before a training session, I'm all for it. But if you're using that as a way to mask symptoms that really need to be investigated on a deeper level, then I think
2: we're starting to get into a bit of a tricky, a tricky spot there. Yeah, many people certainly have like foam rolling or massage therapy as their go-to sort of solution to being injured or having an injury when obviously, like, as you said, that's not necessarily the case.
1: Yeah. And often foam rolling might actually be contraindicated for certain injuries. So if you picked up a quad tear, the last thing I would tell you to do is foam roll because it falls under that massage category. And if we're coming back to do no harm, we don't want to be massaging an acute muscle tear because in the acute stage, that's probably going to just promote even more inflammation and irritate the area even further.
0: Mm. Okay, Lawrence, this next one's an interesting one, because I've got a few clients who actually do have hypermobile joints. And we've had to make a few modifications to their training program just based on how they feel when they do certain movements. But if someone has hypermobility in their joints, for example, their elbows, should they avoid doing certain movements that actually require them to do a lockout? So let's say that someone is hypermobile in their elbows, and they are trying to do something like a tricep pushdown.
1: Mm. So, the tricep push down is an interesting example because obviously, with that movement, we're pushing the bar downwards. And in order to get out of that movement, we're just letting it come straight back up. So, it's very safe in order to actually bail out of that movement. In that instance, if you're getting all the way to the bottom and you're actually finding that when you reach lockout, you can further hyperextend your elbow, I don't see that as being sort of super likely if you're using a load that is sufficient enough to get you close to failure Mm. because you're then your triceps are not in a good position to further recruit and move that weight further when you're already at full tricep extension so to sum up i don't think it would be an issue in that movement particularly if you were finding that you were using light weights and you were hyperextending your elbow and that gives you sensations of pain or apprehension I would probably say it's not a bad idea to just be a little bit more mindful and wait until that point where you are at full extension or just before and then begin your eccentric back up to the top of the movement. Mm. It becomes a little bit different when we're talking about, say, hyperextension of the knees and a leg press. Mm. Because if you're using a plate-loaded leg press, so the hammer strength 45-degree press, and the weight is coming down onto you, If your knees are then hyperextending, you're creating a moment arm for more movement to occur. So when your knees are fully extended, the lockout is not actually as dangerous as everyone thinks because there's no moment arm for the weight to actually come back down. And unless you're probably being quite reckless with weight that you have no business lifting, then you're probably not going to get into too much trouble. And I actually don't even like talking about it because we've all seen those videos on the leg press. I've got one playing in my head at the moment and I'm like, got goosebumps over here. But if you are someone who is able to hyperextend their knees, I would be a little bit more careful on the leg press and potentially only take it to the point where you're just before lockout and use loads that you're able to really control safely because that is going to put you at risk. But if you're able to sort of lock out your knees and they don't hyperextend, it's probably not going to be that dangerous on the leg press unless you're using a silly load that you probably shouldn't be using in the first place.
0: Mm, yeah, just being but- certainly aware of that. Because I, I signed up with a new client recently and, and I programmed her a rear delt fly on the rear delt machine. And she's very hypermobile in her shoulder joint. And when she sent me the video from the back, it was almost as if she could bring both arms behind her back and almost touch her fists behind her back. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) okay, we need to modify this exercise because I think you're going to hurt yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So once again, the body is extremely good at adapting. And if someone is able to do that, their body will get used to doing that. The only thing in that instance that I would probably say to be a little bit more careful of is that in that position where we are going into a lot of horizontal abduction, when we do that, naturally, our head of the humerus is going to move anteriorly relative to our glenoid fossa, which is where it inserts at the shoulder. And that can sometimes be a recipe for dislocation. But then again the body's going to let us know if that's at risk because you're really going to feel apprehensive in that position if those ligaments and that joint is under stress so in certain movements especially if you're starting new ones maybe take it tentatively if you are getting towards those ends of range and just be mindful of any movements where you are feeling that apprehension and once again if you can adapt to it if it's normal for you and it doesn't cause you any pain or feelings of instability it's probably fine but
2: just being cautious of perhaps when you're trying new exercises.
0: Mm, great advice.
2: Great. So wrapping up with a couple more questions, how can hands and grip strength get stronger, but our hands don't hypertrophy like other muscle groups? Alrighty. So I just want to disclaim gonna... and say, I didn't, I didn't ask this question. I heard uh... you guys talking about this actually.
0: I'll put both so... my hands up. <laughs>
2: I'm going to have to hit you
1: guys with a bit of a swindle here because I answered this question on episode 10 of the general muscle podcast. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say to the listeners that if you are desperate to know the answer, you're just going to have to tune in next Monday when the new episode drops and you know, in show business, that is what we call the old tease. So <laughs> you're going to have to tune in next Monday. I did go into a bit of detail around this question. So um,
2: I'll leave it up to that episode till you can get well, that question answered. We'll, we'll link Lawrence's uh, podcast in, in the show notes.
0: Yeah. And Lawrence, one of our final questions for today is when should someone consider seeing a physiotherapist?
1: Yeah. So another great question. All the time. No, I'm just kidding. So obviously, mm-hmm. I, uh, like I said before, it can be easy to pump your services as a physio when you want to get business and you want to get more... Patients and clients and stuff like that. Obviously, from a financial perspective, it would make sense to try to see as many people as possible. But I think if we're truly doing our job right as a profession, we're in an extremely good position to advocate for the patients and to empower them through teaching them about pain, about exercise, about movement, and about the body. And I think if you're in a position where you've been to the gym, you've picked up a little bit of a niggle, it's a bit of discomfort and you think, oh, that could be something. Maybe I've done something to a certain part of my body. I would probably say that if you're uncertain and if the pain is not too high, just give it a couple days and see how it goes. Because this has happened to me before, recently deadlifting. I got up from a set, felt a little bit of a twinge of, of pain in my lower back. And the next day used heat, didn't need to use any medication or analgesia, did some gentle movements. And by the time my next deadlift session came around, I was 100% fine. So if I had rushed out to a physio in that instance, he or she probably would have assessed it and gone, you're okay here, mate. Just relax, give it a couple of days to settle down and you're probably going to get back to normal. And sometimes we can create this sort of fearful response by rushing to a practitioner and getting them to assess us in a very formal way. But it's the area when we get in into those really more significant acute injuries where you're fairly certain that you've done something significant or when you've been dealing with pain for a fairly long period of time so if you have picked up an injury and you notice that after a week, 2 weeks, 3 weeks it's not getting any better that's pretty clear that something is probably going on that we need to address so i had a patient recently who had an injury that occurred in their adductor 4 weeks ago it got a little bit better but then recently flared up again and now has been persisting for a while. So in that instance, yes, it did get a little bit better to mask the pain, but because we didn't actually address the rehab principles that we needed to re-strengthen that area, to prepare it for what he was going to subject it to. Then we see that he actually came undone and, and made the injury a little bit worse. So I would just consider how long you've had the pain and whether or not it seems to be getting better or worse and obviously, there's a lot of nuance within that topic, like certain back conditions. If you're getting symptoms in the lower limbs, for example, pins and needles and numbness, that's stuff that's a little bit more serious where you want to go get yourself checked out by a physio to see if you need to be referred on for any sort of more urgent imaging, stuff like that. But if we're talking about general strains and sprains in the gym, I think give it a couple of days and try not to overreact. But if you know you've done something significant, then by all means get yourself to a physio
2: and and get it assessed. Awesome. Mm, Yeah, very useful information. I wish I had that a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So the final question for you, Lawrence, is what's something that you've learned this week? Yeah well I learned
1: something that I didn't expect to learn this week and it is that cane toads are very tenacious and opportunistic little creatures because actually in this study that I'm recording from we had a cane toad that hopped in the house and got in here so dad was coming home from work at night and there was a bit of rain so obviously here in Queensland Australia this is sort of peak cane toad season and as the door opened it just ran inside and we were all scrambling around the house trying to cover it up with something i'll be honest i was standing on a chair in the corner of the room just barking instructions because <laughs> i've got no time for those animals and i didn't you're, to you're the leader you need to it. instruct <laughs> i know exactly you need someone there just calling the place i was the coach calling the place so yeah i had no idea that the toads actually had any interest to actually get inside and and check it out i thought they were going to be pretty happy out there in the wet but it turns out that a nice carpeted dry environment is something that they might enjoy.
0: Did you end up getting out the salt shaker?
1: No, I've heard that though. Doesn't it like burn their skin or something?
0: (laughs) When I first moved to Australia, I know maybe someone was trying to punk me or something, but yeah, there's obviously no cane toads in Canada. But when we came to Australia, the the surface was covered with them. But they told me that if you actually put salt on a cane toad, it's going to explode. And I was was very underwhelmed when I first did that.
1: yeah no explosions we should probably, uh, probably just add in that uh no cane toads were harmed in the filming of <laughs> this podcast we don't want RSPCA on our tails
0: no but did it all work out in the end
1: it was all fine in the end I think dad stepped up to the plate managed to get it in some sort of bucket and then promptly yoke it into the front yard where it probably enjoyed the remainder of its evening. And yeah, I'm just happy that the study and the house as a whole is now toad free. So that's a big plus.
0: Yeah, that is awesome. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a long overdue podcast, but it's been a pleasure having you on. And Before we head off, please let people know where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so first off, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you guys, and I'm just so proud of both of you in not only how well you do with your physiques and your competition seasons, but the info you guys put out and the way you both just carry yourselves as human beings is is something I really really respect. You're two of the nicest people I've ever met, and it's just been a really great honor becoming your friends over the years. So I just wanted to say a thank you to you guys But if you do want to find me and follow my bodybuilding journey, I'm most active on Instagram. So the handle is at general.muscle. So that's where I will post physique updates, something on the story with my training and food most days and starting to get a little bit more physio related content up there as well. If you want to listen to my podcast, you can go over to Apple or Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast needs fulfilled and just type in the General Muscle Podcast. We're up to episode nine currently and we're going strong. So the goal is to obviously get to where you guys are hundreds of episodes down the line in a couple of years, but got a bit of work to do between now and then. And if you are interested in um, inquiring about my physiotherapy services, I've got an email address at, and it is lawrence at everybody's physio.com.au. I can send out one to you guys and you can chuck in the description Mm -hmm. or you can simply call up everybody's physio in Wellington Point if you're interested about booking in for a consultation.
0: Awesome. Well, Lawrence, thank you again so much for joining us on the show. And if you guys enjoyed it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag General Muscle, tag myself, Jack, TVD, and we will catch you next week.